Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be chatting to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be having a chat with Chris Morris and Alex G. The guys worked together at Breeder for five years where they did some awesome work. Their enthusiasm to work in multiple disciplines including directing, motion graphics, editing, visual effects and storytelling have allowed them to create interesting stories and beautiful visuals. We'll chat about some of their projects, talk about their views on the industry and we'll also discuss Alex's move to Canada. It's really great to get both of you guys together. You guys worked together for a long time at Breeder and I know you've got great stories to tell. Thanks very much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Alrighty guys, first of all, I'm gonna start off by getting your take on what it takes to get a job. Alrighty, Chris, I think we'll start with you. Any advice on what to do when you're looking for a job in a studio, if you're a freelancer or recent graduate? I think it definitely depends on the studio and it'd be hard for anyone to work that out on their own. But if you are going to a big studio, like 20 plus people and, you know, they're very 3D orientated, then you you definitely need to go in there and have a niche, have some component to the 3D pipeline that they're going to see value in you unless they're applying, you know, unless you're applying for a job as a generalist. I think when maybe when it comes to smaller studios, you definitely want to do your research and find out what their bag is and what kind of stuff they're passionate about. Because, you know, if, if, you, if you're not aligned with sort of their ambitions, the studio or whatever, it will be tricky because you could be the perfect person for the job, but it turns out, I don't know, they all love playing golf at lunch or something. And you realise that you hate golf, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alex, so what's your take on getting a job? You know, if you're looking to get a job at a place like Burrito, like a small studio, being honest about the sort of work you want to do and the sort of work that you're good at doing is really important because if you try and fake it, um, you might find that you don't gel as well as the team members than you might like to. But obviously it's going to be different in a bigger studio where the roles are more dispersed. Before we get on to you guys working together, I just wanted to ask you, Alex, what's the scene like in Toronto? The scene for motion design here seems really strong. The city itself is kind of like a little New York with a lot less people, obviously. But the vibe I get is almost like Brisbane in that everybody knows each other and everybody's working with each other in a really collaborative way. So first of all, Alex, how long did you work with Chris at Breda for? Well, it's actually kind of funny. I worked at Breda for exactly five years to the day. The day that I finished was the same date that I started in 2011. And throughout that time, Chris and I worked together on pretty much every project that came through Breeder. I would say Chris was a bit of a mentor to me when I started, especially when it came to After Effects, because I had little to no experience in After Effects. And he already had this immense bag of tricks that he generously shared with me and our other colleagues. So now I want to move on to talking about you guys and your experiences. So Chris, how did you discover motion graphics? And if you could tell us a little bit about your path to that discovery. I originally was pretty passionate about photography as a kid. And then uh, I did get into sort of video-y stuff, but basically when Firewire came out and I realised how accessible film was going to become, uh, I got very excited about the moving image. And then pretty quickly after that, from playing with Photoshop, I realised that After Effects was just a non-destructive Photoshop 
It's like you didn't have to commit to anything. It's brilliant. And then I just filled it around for, I don't know, quite a while in my bedroom when I was younger. So just toiling away, did you actually go to uni at any stage? Uh, I went to TAFE and studied a certificate for in multimedia. And then about two years later, everything they taught me was obsolete or superseded. So no, no, I ended up just sort of doing, just working for places and trying to find mentors and stuff like that. Do you think it's important to go to uni or TAFE? If someone says, I went to Hyper Island, then you definitely pay attention to that. Yeah, like uh, me personally, I've been too phased about what people have studied. It's more like sort of what they did with that study. So how did you discover motion graphics, Alex? Well, I was studying animation in university, but more of a character animation background. And my girlfriend was studying graphic design. And so I sort of became more conscious of design through her. And only then did I realise that there was a crossover between animation and design. And so when I walked into Breda for the first time, it sort of clicked that these two things and worlds that I saw as separate could sort of um, coexist together. So what was your path like from once you got out of high school? So I did similar path in that I went to TAFE first and I guess I saw myself becoming like a Pixar animator or something. But throughout uni, I pivoted a little bit and I realised I wanted to work on more short form content and more with a design background. I was invited in to work at Breeder on a contract basis doing some 3D work and Breeder didn't have a 3D person at the time and so I was filling a gap in that sense and about halfway through the contract work there was a bit of design work that needed to be done and so I sort of put my hand up to have a crack at it and through that I think they sort of recognised the potential in me to do design and after effects and So through that, I transitioned from 3D into more of a 2D motion graphics. What was the Qantas Award all about? My friend and I at uni had made a film together and we had tried to get it shown around festivals, but with not with a great amount of luck. And so after about six months, we got frustrated with keeping our film offline and decided to just put it out. And at the same time, I decided to enter it into some awards and it just happened to pick up the Sawyer Spirit of Youth Award for animation. Yeah, that's how that came about. Basically, what it was was one-year scholarship, uh, not a scholarship, a mentorship under um, Marco Marenghi, who was the animation director at Animal Logic Studios. And as part of the prize, there was a sort of a cash pool that allowed us to go over to LA and meet Marco. And so my friend and I and my girlfriend went over and got to see Animal Logic in LA and then also again in Sydney. So that was really cool. Man, that must have been fantastic. I think because at that stage I was transitioning more into motion graphics, it didn't have as big of an effect as it could have. So, Chris, could you tell us a little bit about your overseas experience and how that benefited you? Well, I grew up in Perth, and so getting out of Perth was a bit of a thing. Like, it's pretty easy to get trapped in a city like that and sort of stuck in an industry working in the same things. Yeah, going to Europe was good in that while it was pretty generic companies that I was working for, I met some really, really incredible sort of compositor slash motion graphics guys, and they're all foreigners. They're all, like, Portuguese or German or something. And then, yeah, just that really high-energy, creative atmosphere was something that I hadn't witnessed before because earlier I was, I was working with a bunch of very intelligent 3D guys, but um, they were very head-down and focused with what they did. 
Whereas I found working, say, in Madrid, while I didn't understand a lot of the Spanish that I was saying, it was but seeing how different individuals and different cultures and I guess differently, different, not industries, but different tiers of production, how they operate and do things has been pretty beneficial. Especially since Breed has been going, it's, it is a smaller business and we're sort of afforded a lot of opportunities to design how we go about things. I think working abroad at a bunch of places and seeing the different approaches that everyone takes, it's a pretty good way to pick and choose the things that you think work best and then sort of build a new pipeline from that, if that makes sense. So now I want to move on to finding out a little bit about the animation motion graphics scene in Queensland, Brisbane and the Gold Coast. If you'd tell us a little bit about that, Alex, it'd be fantastic. I think there's a really strong design community in Brisbane and I think animation and motion graphics are catching up a little bit. It's an interesting thing because there used to be a lot of game studios in Brisbane. It was sort of like there was a bunch of them in Fortitude Valley and I forget the names of a lot of them, but they all sort of went bust around the same time and so a lot of the animation work went south. But in its wake, I think, design has sort of stepped up and motion graphics has sort of come along with that. So in terms of animation industry, there isn't a huge one, but I think the design industry is really strong. And obviously technology going the way it is, design and animation are inseparable in terms of, you know, the way that products are being, are utilizing animation on the iPhone and websites and there is an industry it's just not the sort of industry that you might expect to see in sydney or in melbourne i know alex that you're presently working in toronto but is there any uh, people in brisbane that you think are pretty cool or any animation studios that you like yeah there's a place called liquid animation which does more traditional character-based animation for like disney and those sorts of clients they're pretty big i think they're sort of 20 to 50 people Got a friend named Joe Brum, and he does a lot of animation work, particularly with Half Brick Studios. So he released his game with Half Brick. Um, but he was sort of my animation teacher, and he has a studio called Studio Joho, which does a lot of um, character-based animation, but for smaller projects. I think his work is really interesting. Particularly, he did this series called Dan the Man, which sort of blew up online and had, like, 8 million views on the first one. And, and he did that whole thing himself. It was all self-funded, so which later got funding, and then he did a whole series and a game. So if you can think back, Alex, to when you worked at Breeder, if you could tell us a little bit about Good Moves and what, what inspired you for that. Well, the initial motivation for Good Moves was to create a sort of portal that would connect people that are really interested in motion graphics and people who are maybe interested in finding out more but aren't necessarily the kind of person that goes to motionographer every morning and so we had sort of advertising creatives in mind maybe like art directors or um, creative directors at advertising agencies who maybe don't live and breathe motion design but still want to see what's good and what's on trend or you know we I guess we saw it as a reference guide for for people to keep up to date with like the way that the industry is moving without necessarily getting bogged down in the details. So what was the initial response like? We had a great response through Product Hunt, which is a website that features products. And so a lot of designers and 
uh, entrepreneurs have sort of shown interest in it in that sense as sort of like, wow, this is an interesting product that surfaces good content that maybe we wouldn't be aware of otherwise. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about Breeders' history, its culture and its studio environment? Breeders has been around for sort of five to six years now. It, uh, it actually started as, I guess you could say it sort of started as a venture or as an experiment or something under its sort of sister slash parent company, Joseph Mark, which is sort of about 20 or so people in the building here with us. And they do, they do a lot of digital products and websites and curious things. They also do a lot of their own sort of self-initiated digital products. They sort of, they were doing some motion projects they had a pretty cool culture, you know, free spirits and stuff in the building and it was going, well, it's still going well. And they thought, well, we've got enough motion work here. Let's spawn a brand and attach that to it and start finding individuals. And then the culture itself is curious because it's, it's basic, again, it's sort of spawned from the way that Joseph Mark likes to operate, which is similar to design where you need to question everything and, you know, you've got to question, not question the brief, but make sure that you're delivering what the client needs and asking all the right questions. We do a lot of sort of ideation and brainstorming sessions. We spend a lot of time talking about ideas and then we spend a lot of time trying out ideas and then we get stuck sort of into the projects, you might say. I'd like to talk now about your skill sets and how you apply your skills to get the best outcome. So first of all, Chris, what are your individual strengths? One of my more sort of responsibilities, you could say, is sort of live action. So kind of camera acquisition, blocking direction of humans moving around and all that stuff. And I also have like a background with effects, I guess. So sort of the VFX supervision supervision side of things, making sure that we can execute on all our ideas. That's something I, I really enjoy doing, the problem solving part of it all. Plus my colleagues have you know, they're really good designers. Um, while we mix and match our responsibilities at times, um, we do. We spend a lot of time making sure that while everyone gets an opportunity to chime in on every creative aspect, we have our own strengths and we do our, do our best to make sure that the studio is using the strongest individual for all the different tasks. So, Alex, what's your strengths? My primary strength would be in editing, I guess, because I come from um, a, an animation background where I was sort of learning the rules of storytelling for short film. I, I approach everything with, a, with narrative in mind and with how things feel. And so, you know, I talk about being an editor, but it's editor within a motion and animation um, framework. And so sometimes my editing will actually happen during the animatic stage. And so I might not be actually using finished footage, but it'll happen with roughs. So yeah, it's, it's editing, but it's also animation. What are the important things, Chris, you've learnt in the last six years while working at Breeder? Well, yeah, before working at Breeder, I was, I was at a bunch of 3D um, studios. So I was working with like pretty rigid 3D pipelines, naming conventions. Everyone had their allocated role and responsibility. It was a very traditional setup. And then when I started at Breeder, it blew me away a little bit because everyone was getting everything done pretty quickly and ideating a lot of great stuff. And then you'd hop into the project file and you'd realise that none of the layers had been named. And it sort of occurred to me that you don't actually have to spend time while you've got to keep projects and things tidy and understandable and stuff. Like, I was spending way too much time putting underscores between words and things like this. Quick iteration and ideation was something that 
really struck me when I started here. And I think the other big thing was, again, by coming sort of at things from a different angle, you can structure your, your money in a way that you don't do as many projects that year, but you, everyone's happier, you know? Like, there's a lot of people running capitalist, you might say, sort of setups. And if, you, if everyone's really passionate and everyone wants to do a little bit of overtime or you know, you're willing to do a bit of a passion project, it really does go a long way. Like all the projects that we've done and probably been the most proud of have been ones that we've sort of initiated ourselves to some extent, even though there might have been a client involved. And it, re- it goes a really long way. I can't say that enough. Like doing work that you're passionate about and being self-motivated with it has been one of our biggest strengths. And it's one of the biggest rewards of how we've gone about things. Does Breeder ever get briefs, Chris, that, that are outside your expertise or style of work? Or do you guys give everything a go? Yeah, one thing that we do have to do is like Breeder isn't perfect for every client. Like some people come to us and they want a 20 minute long, some epic masterpiece that's 20 or 30 minutes long. And um, that's sort of, we don't usually chase after those sorts of projects. So sometimes when we get a brief in, we have to ask a ourselves like are we the right entity to bring value to this client as well if, if we feel for whatever reason it doesn't fit in with our schedule or our hopes and dreams or whatever we nearly always turn towards someone else that we know or another studio or whatever and then we try to walk the client through basically educate them to the industry a little bit and then put them in the best position to move forward do we ever get the guys from Joseph Mark to pop over and help you out? Yeah, sometimes. There's some very intelligent people over there. And they and while we're all sort of motion individuals at Breeder, you might say there's a lot of great inspiration to be taken from photography or, you know, design, all the different sort of schools of design as well. Sometimes we, would, we will. Like if we're a bit stuck on an idea, we'll just go left field and start asking the architect that we've got here in house, like, what does he think about it? And then he, he done. John will come back with some crazy, crazy spatial analogy of it or something and point you towards a book. And then that idea leads on to the next thing. It's very, it's very, very varied. It's, a, it's as varied as the styles and the types of animation that you've got to make sometimes. So back when you were working with Chris at Breeder, once you have the brief all worked out, do you use much references to generate ideas or what's your first sort of steps? One of us may have seen something and we'll bring that into the discussion. And it could be from the motion graphics community or it could be, you know, a live action spot or it could be from anywhere really. And then someone else might have seen something and then it'll be the combination of those two things that sparks the idea. And that's really what we're trying to do with Good Moves as well, is like create a platform where you could look at like a lot of different styles of motion graphics. And then from that, determine maybe a unique direction that you could go forward with. Um, So yeah, inspiration and reference is a big part of like how we come up with ideas. And these days you see a lot of people putting timing edits together using video content from the internet. Do you guys do stuff like that, Alex, Chris? Yeah, we've done a bit of that as well. Not for public projects, but for clients that are wanting to pitch an idea to someone else without sort of making the thing. So they might want to sell a product that, you know, maybe it's a lifestyle brand and they want to use, you know, footage that is indicative of what that brand feels like. I think that's pretty common. I'd like to move on to presenting ideas. Chris, what are the methods and techniques you use to present and sell your ideas? And do you think that selling your ideas is important? 
it's definitely a fine line to educate clients on good and bad decisions sometimes. So like they, they are buying they are buying your knowledge and your service, but they're also buying your advice, you know, and part of the service is to sort of tell them that going down that road could reflect poorly on social media or whatever. Alex, do you have anything to add to that? You know, there is a fine line between selling your idea to the client and over-promising or promising something that maybe you haven't thought deep enough and, and get the client sort of excited about it without locking yourselves in. Because we all know that when you start working on a project, it evolves and it becomes something better or, or different to what you originally thought. Um, mm. And yeah, I think if you lock yourself in too early, then you miss out on a lot of opportunities that you may not have considered. So now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the projects you work together on at Breeder. Could you tell us a little bit about the True Detective project? How did you guys get it? What was your role? And what was the response like to the work? Yeah, Breeder was lucky enough to help out Antibody, which is Patrick Clare's company. Well, actually, it's, a, it's an elastic project. Um, Patrick directed it, obviously. He got in contact with us and sort of said he was doing a double exposure project and needed help compositing some of their designs. And so then he sent through like 50, 50 plus designs of just all this cool looking jazz and then sort of said, hey, well, let's spend a few weeks fiddling with this and see what we come up with. So we had like a, I don't know what it was, three or four weeks or something of testing. And then after that, it was like, cool, all of these shots are going to work great. Let's look into securing rights to all of these pixels from all these different um, entities because some of it's from Instagram, some of it's from Corbus, which is like a stock website. So I, I believe there was some producers busting their ass trying to get clearance on everything. And then there was another, I think, three or four weeks of um, just sort of redoing all the shots with high res sort of final assets and that. Breeder just helped out compositing some of the stuff and a little bit of the ideation, but all the design work and everything was already done and that Patrick had sold into HBO. What was the turnaround time like on the project? Eight, eight or nine weeks or something. And you guys just focused on the compositing shots? Yeah, yeah, and that was only for like nine shots or something. The majority of the work was produced in Sydney by um, Raoul Marks and, and Patrick and uh, one or two other individuals, I believe. I just want to say that I love that uh, opening sequence and the compositing work. What was other people's response like? Well, they did a great job, right? Like, it looks, it looks pretty great. And it's funny, over the years, talking to people about it, everyone remembers it. It seems to strike a chord with a lot of folks. Why do you think that is? Possibly because it was a really good series. Like, that season was banging, and I think a lot of people attach awesomeness to things like titles, depending on the quality of the season as well. That being said... It's probably the only thing that we've ever worked on that you could walk up to a stranger and say, oh, yeah, we, we were lucky enough to contribute to that. I imagine that would probably be the widest audience you've ever had. These days, you could put a video of a cat on the internet and get 30 million viewers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. You, don't need a, you don't need a great story to um, get click-throughs or anything. Often, well, just the whole the new paradigm of clickbait and everything that's happening to humanity now, like, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. Like, you can just have a photo of a, I don't know, a decapitated rabbit and people are going to think, well, that, that title sounds pretty interesting. I want to know what happened to this rabbit. And then you get a click and whatnot. Whereas people actually telling really beautiful stories or creating, like, tremendous art, it's, there's stuff everywhere, but you just don't see that high-quality stuff as much, you might say. There's definitely a lot of noise. So, Alex or Chris, could you tell us how you landed the Expanse project? Basically, we were invited to pitch on the project and typically we don't pitch on projects if there isn't a budget allo allocated. 
But in this case, we thought it was really interesting projects. And at that time, we were really interested in space. And so it seemed like the perfect um, opportunity to sort of flex our muscles on something that we wanted to work on. And so our art director, Joyce, she put in quite a quite a bit of time on the weekend and late nights doing up some boards, um, which we then submitted as a pitch proposal. And off the back of that, they decided to go with us. And so from there, the process was really refining the boards in a way that was applicable to the show. So for example, the original boards, they had sort of generic spacey sort of things in them that followed a story, but it wasn't connected to the series as strongly as it needed to be. And so the second phase was reiterating those boards and almost repitching with more of a, a connection to the series and using, you know, the actual ships that are in the show. And from there, um, they were approved and then we went into production and we took a 3D person on board. And I think, how long was the project? I think in total, six or eight weeks in total working back and forth with the client. The client was based in Toronto. I think it's called Alcon Studios. And they were nearing the end of finishing up the series and getting all the VFX finalized. And so we came in at just the right time, I think, because a lot of the assets had already been built and we were able to take those, sort of make low res versions of them and integrate them into our direction. And Yeah, the process was pretty fluid on the project. It was one of those projects where we created the animatic more or less once the boards were signed off and then um, one by one replaced the animatic shots with sort of iterations on it. So there would be a first pass with blocking and then there would be a second pass with a render um, and then on top of that would go sort of motion graphics elements and then eventually the typography and so it was a really good project because it was we were iterating the whole time and there was I think five of us working on it pretty much full time and back and forth in on shots and so the guys working on the show would have been working in Maya yeah how did you deal with that they were we were supplied with Maya assets which had to be converted into FBX which was difficult because a lot of the textures didn't link up and so some of those textures had to be redone in-house here but I think the nature of the project is that we didn't want super realistic 3D we wanted it to have a design style and to feel stylized and feel aligned with you know the breeder aesthetic so what was the software you used generally after effects and sometimes a combination of uh, after effects element and cinema 4D did you make any other assets there was some collateral material. For example, the typeface that we used in it um, was a variation on DIN, but we had modified it for the titles. And so they were wanting to use that typeface throughout their marketing. And so we had to kind of create variations on titles, but um, we didn't work on VFX on the show. I'd like to move on now to the Foot Locker project. Could you tell us a little bit about working with robots, Chris? A local creative agency here, Pusher, um, one of their employees, his brother and his dad own every film toy in existence in a studio, local studio called Light and Motion. And they've also got a motion, high-speed motion control entity called Tasty Pictures. And so breeders, we're pretty good friends with the Isaacs because they're very lovely people. 
And so we got a call from Steve, who's the dad, saying, hey, my son's got a low budget project, but I really want to get my robots out and, you know, I want to help my son out and, and help out the creative. And so basically the, they came to Preda saying, look, we've, we've got a couple of shoes, like only a few shoes, and we've got this idea of throwing a bunch of paint on them. And they had a couple of sketches actually that showed like a shoe hovering in space with paint sort of looking like goo. It was like a, a sketch, you might say. Normally, you'd freak out at that and you'd probably have to start learning, I don't know, water sims or something to do it. But um, because they've got these robots and all these things, we knew that we could get away with doing relatively repeatable moves. And again, they own all this kit, so the price point on it was very agreeable. And it was one of those projects where it was a bit of a real piece for all the people involved. Going about doing it was a bit trickier in that They've got two robots. We knew we had to mount one shoe in space and then film the shoe uh, and have a camera, obviously, on the other robot. And so what they did is they got a little trigger system made where like a little motor spins around and slices a balloon of paint. So they could dial all the timings of that into the desk and into the robots. But there was some sort of variables about how much paint you put in there and all these things. And um, it's pretty much all in camera, hey? Like we, we smeared some pixels here and there for fun and we comped in tidbits of pixels of stuff but the project itself was shot in camera all we had to do was paint out a little rod that was coming out of the back of the shoe we didn't even do roto we similar to star wars we just relit the scene high contrast and then shot luma mats of the shoe spinning through space so in camera we got all this great stuff for free Um, and it was definitely one of those projects where you know we said to the client look we're going to throw paint on a shoe and we're not entirely sure what's going to happen but we'll do our best to make it all work well g cut to get an edit which uh was exactly what they wanted and it all worked out really well actually like they did come back eventually and say hey can we put some extra logos on the end and all these things as as they do but um we were very happy we were quite surprised at how well that project went because um it would have been pretty stressful to sort of promise things to a client and then try to make robots do them for realsies Was it a stressful experience? It wasn't stressful in that everyone on the crew knew what they had to do. And again, it came back to framing the client's expectations in a way that's kind of acceptable to everyone involved, you know? Like in animation, especially uneducated clients who want an animation or want something for their website, like if someone says to you at the end of their meeting and it'd be great if it can go viral, like, you know, like that's not a cool thing to say in a meeting. And it shows that possibly the individual might expect too much from their budget. Foot Locker, like many of our projects, you know, they're not always the greatest budgets, but we sort of pride ourselves on working out a clever way to get the most out of that money for the client. Foot is the perfect example, I guess, where we had the company that owns the equipment invested in the project. Foot Locker themselves supplied as many shoes as they could. The, the most expensive part was the paint. What do you reckon, 12, 14 shoes? Yeah. It was a sneakerhead's nightmare because there were these beautiful, like, brand-new white Air Force Ones and we were just, like, drilling holes in the back of them. (laughs) Pretty crazy. How do you manage your clients' expectations and make sure you can deliver the actual storyboards that you create? The 10,000 steps you need to go through to get to your outcome, you know, it can go so many different ways. And I just think too often animators basically commit to things and then they've got to work it out and as long as it's within their field of skills or you know they've got friends they can turn to it's fine but you know there's a lot of clients out there now who who their visual maturity is just off the chart there's so many people now who watch game of thrones who watch 
you know, you look at some of the images that are in Doctor Strange, like it is incredible. And, you know, 15 years ago when you watched, well, I don't know, 17 years ago when you watched The Matrix, you were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And everyone was freaking out a little bit and talking about how clever Hollywood is. Whereas now, I, it's been years since I've heard someone say, wow, that's amazing that they did that. The only time I ever hear people say, oh, did you see how they did that? Is when they've watched a behind the scenes on some crazy spot and they realize that they actually threw 100,000 colorful Super Bowls down a San Francisco street or something. I want to talk now about the project. This is Joseph Mark. Alex, could you tell us a little bit about the process of storytelling in this project? Joseph Mark came to us and said, we want to create a video that sort of intros out you know, us to clients, not in a way that's like, this is exactly what we do and this is how much it costs, but more in the sense of like, this is what we feel and this is what we're inspired by and what we're passionate about. Um, and they had been doing a lot of work on their end to solidify that in terms of like brand values. And so it was really up to us to take that and then take those brand values and then represent that in a visual way. Um, so in terms of process, it started with scripting and I was in the meetings from the very beginning in terms of what the script should be and what it should say and what it shouldn't say. Um, and that was quite a long process. I think it probably, we were iterating that for weeks on end. Who did you use to write the script? Uh, we used one of Joseph Mark's copywriters, which was good because she had been working on all the brand value stuff. And so she was across everything in terms of like their tone of voice and um, making sure that it felt authentic. It was really just about working with her to create a script that would also be supported visually. Um, once the script had been signed off, it was actually quite straightforward. There was two shoots. One was using a red camera down at the beach, sort of submerging that in water and getting a lot of wave material. And then the second was a shoot in the studios at Light and Motion where we just set up a table with some paper and some pencils and we got uh, Joyce, our art director at the time, to draw some shapes on the paper and sort of got close-ups of that. Um, yeah, there wasn't a storyboard necessarily. It was just we got this content and then we spent a lot of time editing it to make sure that it had the right feeling. What made you pick the ocean as a subject matter? You, if you met Ben, you would understand immediately. <laughs> He's sort of this long-haired, surfy-looking guy, um, and he certainly has that spirit about him. You know, his values have seeped into the organisational values. There's a real strong connection to nature and about building a world that is sustainable, what drives JM. Um, and so the waves were, in a way, a metaphor for... That nature can be temperamental and that it isn't this fixed thing, that it's always flowing and moving and changing. And so too is business moving and changing and evolving. And it was really about being able to see the next waves that are coming in and, and how those waves would affect, you know, the landscape of the digital in the future. It's very cinematic. Did you ever view it on a projector? It'd be best really big, I imagine. For a while, we were toying with the idea to um, project it onto the office window so that at night people walking past would see the wave, but uh, we couldn't find a projector strong enough to do it at the time. So, Chris, I'd like to get your take on the pitching process and if you think it's good or bad for the industry. Oh, it's very, very 
It's a very tricky topic, pitching. Brita has a curious, well, I know another special when it comes to pitching. Um, like everyone, we've done plenty of free pitches before. If a client is extremely wealthy and we know that they're looking to scrape ideas, we'll sometimes turn to them and say, look, well, it's going to cost you money if you want us to put the whole studio on ideation for a week. That being said, like it's inevitable. The internet is here. Fiverr.com or whatever it is, is here. The free pitch will always be around and no one can ever compete with uni students. And I think it's kind of foolish for people to complain about uni students, third world artists doing cheap work and undercutting everyone. It's no different to Uber and all these things we're seeing in the digital world. I do think free pitching does kind of suck. And there's, some, there's an interesting book, what is it, The Win Without Pitching? Yeah, Win Without Pitching by Blair Enns. And he, he sort of talks about things like you can graph your value to a client and you'll say, and one thing he says is if your initial value to the client is zero, you know, you can't demand any money from them, but you give them your best ideas. And then down the road, you execute the project and you charge them some money. And if you're lucky, the, the client comes back every year and they iterate it a little bit and you charge them a little bit of money until everyone retires. But uh, he argues that that graph shouldn't be logarithmic. It should be, I don't know, a vertically flipped logarithmic graph, whatever that is. He basically makes the point that you're most valuable in the pitch. When you diagnose a client's problem and then you prescribe the solution, you've just given them your highest value component to your service. Moving down the road and executing and then surfacing that agreement along the road and updating it and changing the, the date on something like down the road, you have no value to the client. Changing a super or a little thing, you know, that means nothing. It's, it's that first initial burst of creativity and that problem solving that can generate ridiculous amounts of revenue for someone or help them sell something in or fix a problem or whatever it may be. That's the most important part. We're very cautious about giving people brilliant ideas, even though we, we want to because we want to hopefully execute them down the road. But um, normally what we'll do is we generally lean towards one concept when we do pitch. We don't normally go and do three fully realized pitches and then say to them, hey, which one do you like? Uh, we generally go to them and say, look, we've gone down multiple avenues of ideation here and you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about it. And through our own diagnosis, we feel that this is the strongest path. That and also we can see how we're probably going to be able to get it done very well. We can see how it fits within the budget and all these other things. Now I'd like to talk about the topic shooting and directing footage for motion graphics projects. Chris, when did you start directing shoots and what effect does that have on your creative process? Well, me personally, I, um, I started out as a camera operator at like a corporate video place, doing lots of weddings and all sorts of wacky things which worked out great because it's a horrible, horrible job that teaches you how to be very sort of quick with a lens and on the ball and spot opportunities. And then I got into animation sort of at the same time and after that I moved into motion and everything. So I've always been a big fan of live action and I do have a bit of a thing for compositing stuff on people. Like, I, you know, I've got my own theories on everyone's obsessed with humans and everyone wants to be looking at humans and it's just natural for us to be drawn to an image that has a human in it. So if you can get a human up in that picture somehow and then put some textures in there, it's usually a good start. You seem to do a lot of motion graphics work with live action in it. I do, like I'm a big fan of live action and so I am always trying to ideate something that has a live action component to it. 
A, it's a great jumping point for image making and coming up with stuff, having sort of plate photography to work from. B, you know, certain projects do really benefit from having live action in them in that you can generate animation and motion from the components in the frame. That said, like, you know, it's, it's far easier to throw paint on a shoe and film it with a robot than um, to do it in the computer. There are times that you really do need to just get 3D out and get some animated objects going. But if you can somehow work out a way to do that shot for realsies and then film it and then do your, your motion augmentation stuff afterwards, I personally feel like it's something that not a lot of folks, it's not a road that a lot of folks go down. Lots of people are just incredible 3D individuals and so they'll, they'll, go, to, they'll go to a 3D package to get it done. And it always looks amazing. I'd argue sometimes it maybe looks too amazing and too crisp. So there's a bit of a grunginess sometimes that comes with, with real world footage that I really like personally. Alex, do you think it's important to be multi-skilled and be able to work in different areas? I think it's really important, not just to be skilled, but to be aware of like how things work across, across the whole medium. So understanding how an editor works and understanding how someone is going to shoot it or how someone is going to art direct for it. I think you don't have to be like brilliant in everything, but if you have a good, a good grounding across all of it, then it's much easier to come up with ideas that you can execute on rather than these lofty ideas that you might think, oh, wow, that's a great idea, but now how do I make that a reality? One thing I've noticed with some creatives is they get stuck in sort of a pattern of going, okay, well, I'll start with an idea and then I'll storyboard it and then I'll shoot it and then I'll edit it and then I'll grade it and it'll be done. But if you approach it like, okay, I'm not going to storyboard, I'm just going to go out and shoot something and then I'll take what I've shot and I'll combine it and then I'll design around what I've got combined. And then from there, I'll re-edit it. And then maybe I need to shoot another thing. So I'll shoot that and put it in. You end up with something that's, it can't help but be original. Whereas if you do it the same time every time, you'll, you'll end up doing the same work every time. And that's not really interesting. Well, it's not interesting for me to do that work. I, I still think it's interesting to look at, but in terms of making work that fulfills you in your day to day, yeah. Being multi-skilled is a way of kind of having lots of interests and being able to nourish those interests. So guys, we're near the end. I'd just like to talk a little bit about inspiration. Alex, where do you look for inspiration? Um, I look to music for inspiration, music and songwriting. Something about the written word combined with music just hits me in an emotional place that I can't help but see images. And so usually if I have an idea for an image, it's come from listening to music. What about you, Chris? I definitely second the music thing. Um, it's crazy how different it is to animate something or to do something, fiddle with an image uh, just in silence. Whereas if you've got the sound in there and even if it's not a final bit piece of audio, it's so much easier to guide the hand and to get, the, get some motion going. In regards to like live action-y things, I generally just look at lots of photography and it could be anything. It could be architectural or lampshades and stuff. So who in your career has inspired you, Alex? I almost feel like everyone I've encountered has inspired me in some way. I, I do spend a lot of time with music, so I have to shout out some musicians like Leonard Cohen and 
Cat Power and Jimi Hendrix, like there's some their approach to music I think is it's like an artist seeking to do something original and that is how I approach design and and my work. It's like to try and get to the truth in something. Music, skateboarders, I've shot um, film photography for a long time and there's something about black and white that really sticks with me and just getting the tonal quality of black and white right is so satisfying to me. So black and white photographers, definitely. What about you, Chris? Definitely all the people I've been lucky enough to work with, like Joyce and G, all the guys here at Breeder have taught me so much, egged me on to do better work throughout the years, which is pretty awesome. And there's a lot of great individuals at Joseph Mark as well. Probably the most on-point person for me would be G-Monk because he's nuts. He's done so many different things and he's even looking at doing live-action gags with his motion these days, which really excites me. He's just been around for so long. Like, it was it was his 2004 showreel, actually. When I saw that, I lost, lost it and thought, all right, I definitely have to learn this. How do you sharpen your skills and improve your style? The best thing you can do is be... Not hypercritical, but pretty critical of your own work. If you think everything you're making is amazing, it's funny how often you you look at something you made three months ago and you realise it's just pus. That's for me. That's when like that keeps my head on, and I do this a lot. Like as soon as I do a master render or finish something, the next day I'll watch it. Then two days later I'll watch it. I'll wake up in the morning, I'll watch it, and I in as many different emotional states or whatever, and different settings and with different amounts of time having passed, I'll review my own stuff and then just tear it apart and like make sure that I'm very, very aware of how things could have been better. It's, you know, it's probably the quickest way to stagnation is just to love everything you're doing, right? And I guess the other thing would be just surround yourself with people who you consider far better than yourself because they're going to keep you the realist, obviously. How do you improve yourself, Alex? Often I'll give myself a day or two between doing something and releasing it, just to make sure that what I've done is actually something I can be proud of going forward into the future. Because sometimes you do something, you think that's great, and then you look at it the next morning and you go, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need sort of fresh eyes to see that. I guess in terms of pushing yourself, I try and make work that I'm happy with and then push it further. Like say to yourself, okay, that's good, but is there any way that I could improve on this with my current knowledge? Is there anything that I could go and quickly learn that will then elevate this further? Or something I can watch? Or And, and this applies to kind of anything. Like I could be writing an email and I'll think, why don't I just go and read a passage out of someone else's novel that I like and then go back and write that email? And I think like when it goes to, back to most point of like surround yourself with things that inspire you and that you admire you can't help but soak that up so alex how are you finding it in canada what are you working on now and what would you like to work on in the future yeah aside from the cold i'm really liking it in canada Uh, at the moment i'm freelancing and so between projects i've just been working on my portfolio and my goal for the next two years is really to spend a little bit less time working on commercial projects and a little bit more time working on my own self-initiated projects. I'm working on a short film at the moment and I've been learning guitar in the hopes that uh, I might be able to take a stab at composing the music for it as well. 
So yeah, taking the opportunity to follow up on some long-neglected creative pursuits. Chris, what would you like to do in the future? Win clients who are into that whole, um, they want to try something different. You know, they want to have auxiliary outputs from from the project for social media, maybe even some sort of more interactive-y kind of things or installation-y kind of things. That said, I personally think that title sequences are... You know, motion creative's best opportunity to to do something that that has that emotional sway, like G said, or you get to piggyback on this incredible thing that some team of people in the US or whatever have done, and they said, "Look, we've already established a whole world. We just need you now to like frame it for us a little bit and inform the audience for that little intro." That said, long term, like my wife's a was a vet and she's an ecologist or ecology kind of things at the university. And when I see people like that, I think about how they're out there making the world a little bit better for everyone. And when you're animating a square across a screen, um, while entertainment can kind of bring joy to people, sometimes you don't really feel as if you're making the best contribution to the world. That said, I do believe that eco-marketing and kind of through motion and storytelling, like you can reach millions of people on the internet and you know you can get them to stop using plastic bags there's there's some pretty righteous things that we we all can do with our skill sets it's pretty easy to discount them as being uh, what's the word i don't know too first world or too money orientated it'd be nice to be able to basically do projects that educated folks about being a bit better to one another on that note, you guys have been fantastic taking the time and having a long conversation with me. I think that's a great place to finish it. Thanks very much for your time, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for thinking of us. Thanks very much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes. And you can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or... You can come find us on Facebook. You can find Chris Morris at studiobreeder.com and you can find Alex G at Alex, the letter P, G.com. Hope you have a good week. See you later. Bye. Masters of motion. Masters of motion. Bye-bye.